Welcome everyone to the RJOS podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger, and I'm your host. This season of the RJOS podcast is entitled The Road Less Traveled and highlights surgeons who have taken a non-traditional path during their orthopedic career. On this episode, we've got a great interview with Dr. Reed Nichols. We all know that nurses are truly the individuals who are the backbones of any hospital. Without them, we literally could not perform our jobs. There is no one who knows this relationship better than Dr. Nichols, who was once a nurse in the surgical intensive care unit prior to transitioning to orthopedic surgery. Hearing her speak about her journey and the numerous obstacles she overcame to be the surgeon she is today is truly inspiring. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Nichols, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Reed Nichols. Dr. Reed Nichols, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited to speak with you today, and thank you so much for joining us. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I would like to start with your background. So where did you go to medical school, residency, your fellowship, and your post-fellowship years? All right, so can I start a little bit even before that? Because I would that, completely support that. That would be a, probably a good thing. So, because I yes. don't have a typical path, but I used to work for this no. um, gynecologist and he had very complicated patients and I happened to take care of his kids too. So I really, I feel like I raised them. I was There weren't that many people that could handle these kids. They were a little bit crazy, but um, I did. <laughs> and it comes, you know, their farm, they had a huge farm with alpacas. So it came with a menagerie of other things. But mm-hmm. the father was at this point 62 he was falling off horses falling off mountain bikes and he was just he just was itching to just get out and just do stuff because he had been in medicine for so long and so i looked Mm -hmm. at that and i I had just graduated from college and i was like you know i think i I gotta keep living my life before i make Mm -hmm. the next transition i went to uva undergrad it was the best i played lacrosse it was the best and I had learned a lot in my lacrosse playing things. Is a I didn't get into UVA the first time. I applied early decision. Mm-hmm. I didn't get in. I applied regular decision. Somehow didn't get in. So I wrote a letter, and um, it was <clears throat> it was enough to let my little toe get in the door, and I got off the wait right. list. So I'll just tell okay. you that's the beginning of the theme of my life. Everything takes mm-hmm. about three tries, but you know if you stay persistent, it often happens. Mm-hmm. So. Went to UVA, played lacrosse, and I didn't make the team the first year. I actually blew out my knee the next year, so didn't get to play. Made it the third year, and we won the national championship twice while I was there. Went to the Final Four all four Congratulations. years. And so that was really like, this is how my life began. So then I'm working for this guy. I'm like, seriously, you've got to stop falling off of things and I really made the commitment to myself that I'm to be a, the best doctor I can. I have to be the best person. I have to know who I am. I have to take risks. I have to fail. I have to get back up and move on. And so that kind of took me, I was like, you know, I think I try to apply to PA school. Mm-hmm. I, I was under, you know, in undergrad, I did pre-med stuff. I didn't rock everything. Uh, I'll give it a try. So I, I was like, no, I'm going to nursing school. So I got into Hopkins nursing school um, and 
I started there and I was like, wow, this is really cool. Nursing school is no, no joke though. Oh my gosh. I think I cried more in that than I did in, in residency and orthopedics. But, um, so I, one day I was on, um, the med surge floor and I went over with my instructor, Donna, to the SICU, the surgical ICU. And I was like, this is about the scariest place I've ever seen in my entire life. There were drips everywhere. I mean, things beeping. I, I was like, well, I'm going to work here. This is awesome. <laughs> so I, um, I did my leadership, which is the last semester you, you actually go out and do some work. And, uh, mm-hmm. it was really fun. Now <clears throat> I almost didn't get hired because the nurse manager said that I was too social. And I was like, did it affect my work? And I was like, what are you talking about? How can you not hire me? So I was like, as I tell my children now, when they get in trouble and I say no to them, I said, well, maybe you should say, mommy, would you reconsider? So I asked the nurse manager, I'm like, if it didn't affect my work, would you reconsider hiring me? And so she did. And it turned out to be an awesome job. And I really loved working in the SICU. I mean, sick, sick people, but we had an amazing team. And it was kind of a game changer in the SICU at that time because it was a very, just not a happy place to be. Mm-hmm. And there were five of us that started all together. One of, one of my best friends, we played lacrosse together and we just had, had fun. I was a bartender on the weekend, you know, on the weekends. And, and so people would come and it was just, and we did really good work. Like we really cared about right. our patients. So it turned this really intense SICU experience to one that we were working hard, but getting things done. Mm-hmm. And then I started, I mean, I really wanted to go to med school my whole life. Um, and I just, I kept looking and I would try to let the doctors, you know, and this, when the patients were going to surgery, you know, I would go in to see the Whipple and if I didn't have another patient and, you mm-hmm. know, I would sew up the, the, if a trauma patient came in, I, the residents would let me sew. And, and there was one, one of the, uh, <clears throat> charge nurses came in and I was sewing. She's like, what are you doing? And I looked up, I'm like, I'm just tying the knots. <laughs> and so it really, it kind of kept me interested and I really wanted to learn more. And so I would look mm-hmm. stuff up and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to apply. So I applied to med school, but you know, my life is about three tries, right? So I right. did not get into anywhere. And then finally I got into St. George's. So I went to, mm-hmm. I went to Grenada for two years and I had oh, like wow. 20 of the best friends of my life. They all scored at least in the 99th percentile in the US, USMLE. I mean, brilliant people and fun and mm-hmm. really close. I mean, med school's not easy down there. And it's, you know, it's beautiful, but you're studying. I mean, the, the courses don't change. It's tough. And right. <clears throat> so then I had an opportunity to try to transfer. So this is the one time it didn't take me three tries. I was able to transfer. There were about six of us that transferred out of um out of St. George's because I really wanted a, a place to call home, not you know going all over the place doing traveling um, residents, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> uh, sub eyes and stuff. And so I was lucky enough to go to to change over to uh, it was called Neo UCOM at that point in Rootstown, Ohio. And it was weird because I was already older. I had had another career. I. Mm-hmm. I started off late. I didn't go to med school until I was 30. I'm only 35 now, but um, uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. 
but I was older to begin with. And this was a six year program. So these people are wow. way younger than I am, but I do act a little bit younger than I, my stated age, but that's, so that's helpful. But, um, it was a very weird experience. You know, I had come from 25 of my best friends in the world, always with me to pretty much you are your island, your own island. I ran a bunch of marathons, right. I ran a bunch of marathons in my third year of med school for sure. <laughs> and, um, and I graduated from there and I had met this uh, doctor who did a hip fracture. I mean, it was really not that big a deal, right? Putting right. three screws into this poor little old lady's hip, but I was the only one in the room. There were no residents. And so the attending let me, I, I probably turned the screwdriver like 10 times and I thought it was like the best day of my life. But he invited me to the, like, he wanted me there. He he encouraged mm -hmm. me to come up and say, in participate in the surgery. I was like, wow, this is cool. I think I really, I really might do this orthopedic thing. Now I've you know, torn my ACL right. at one point. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And so that little invitation in that room, and he was pretty funny also, which I really appreciated. Um, I was like, I'm going to apply to orthopedics, but typical read fashion, not going to get in, right? No way. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having to do a preliminary general surgery year. And mm -hmm. um, I was at Union Memorial. And the funny thing is the residency director was one of the attendings that I used to admit the patients for when he worked at Hopkins. So oh, wow. it was so weird to see your world coming back together. And mm -hmm. um, somehow um, I got an interview. There was a PGY2 spot open at Maimonides in Brooklyn, which was a real culture change from Baltimore. I'm telling you, it's, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very, um, cool place, but um, it's just culturally different than I had right. seen before. And um, I interviewed with seven guys and me, and they hadn't had a woman at Maimonides in 18 years. And I was oh, wow. like, well, this is not going to go anywhere. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no way. And somehow, some way I got that PGY2 spot and oh, wow. it was like I still Jack Schweck is my hero because he again let my my little pinky went in the door and mm -hmm. you know they didn't they didn't kick me out and it was a fabulous experience it was hard sometimes you know they were not all always used to working with women um, but right. you know I had some tough some crucial conversations sometimes but it uh, when I was a chief I, I knew when it was when I had to give it up to my uh, co-chief. Mm -hmm. uh, there were only two of us at the time. And our program was going through a huge change when we were third and fourth years, really like mass exodus of attending. So um, my co-chief and I had figured out how to ask for an away rotation. We sort of, it, we were going under proba probation and I said, well, listen, let's make the most of it because it's not going to close. So you are the master of your own destiny. So you can complain, and we had some uh, people that were our senior residents that were really mm -hmm. tough people, um, not team players, conspiracy, mm -hmm. conspiracy theorists, and just tough, just tough. I mean, not fun to work with, not a great learning experience. And so the two of us, we just, we, we came together, we made a conscious decision. This is not going away. We have to work hard to make it the best place possible. And so we both, right. he went, he, he does hand and he wanted to go to, um, up to Boston 
So we spent a month there and I spent a month in Baltimore because I had just gotten, uh, I'd just gotten married and we had never lived, we, we lived in two different states. So we got married oh and then like the next day we went back to our separate states. It was fabulous. Um, and so we were going to try this living together thing for three weeks. I was like, I'll, I, I thought I was going to do trauma. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do shock. And then I stumbled on to limb deformity. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And it's at Sinai, which is right around the corner from my house. I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa, this is perfect. And it turned out to be the best thing ever for me because it set me up for my whole life. And so that's right. sort of how I weaved into that and ended up coming back there to do a fellowship. Um, and then I ended up doing a second fellowship because um, I didn't, I thought I was hopefully going to get a job there. It didn't happen like that. So I found the next best thing, which was probably the best thing always. So um, I, I ended up with my dream job and it was just by kind of accident. So, right. Oh my God. Such a good story. I do want to tackle into your life, um, as a nurse and as a SICU nurse, which I know, you know, just as interns, we spend four weeks in the SICU and it is such a rotation and it gives you such a perspective on what, how integral the nurses are in the care of these patients. And I, for me, I think um, I first want to ask you about the career change. What, was it a daunting thought to you or was it something where you're just like, this needs to happen? I, so, okay, this is, so when I graduated from UVA, I did fine. I worked on a dude ranch. I, you know, I, like I told you, I wanted to experience life. I pretty much, right. had, I was a referee for field hockey and lacrosse. Like I did a lot of crazy stuff. But mm-hmm. when I, um, I really never gave up the desire to go and go to med- uh, to medical school, it which, and I really thought that nursing was going to give me everything I needed, and especially the SICU. I mean, that mm-hmm. is an intense place to work, and mm-hmm. you have to know a lot, and you have to you. I mean, you're learning all the time, and I t- I, I absolutely love learning, and what I realized was that nursing really teaches you very much on the macro level. And then medical school, when you're reading all the, when I was like, I was reading the text in the back and it's a very integral learning. So micro level to macro level, and you get this sort of transition time with mm-hmm. your knowledge. So I was looking at nursing. I was like, okay, I have got the job that I wanted in 10 years as my first job. Mm-hmm. I could stay here forever. I'm probably not going to do that. But if I want to go up, I, I didn't want, well, number one, I didn't want to go to become a nurse practitioner. Um, this, the science of nursing is very different than the science that we learn. Um, and I always use the, the Dorothy Oram's theory of self-care. Brilliant idea. If patients take care, learn to take care of themselves, they will do better. That's the science of nursing. Like, it's a great theory, but it's not it doesn't involve molecules and, and like stuff that, I don't know, it just, it was not good for me. I, the thought of going to get right. my master's or PhD in that, I was like, nope, this is not for me. The other way you can go up in nursing, there's tons of lateral growth. You can do tons of right. different fields. You can learn, but to go up, you have to go into administration or become mm-hmm. a CRNA. And I am really bad at keeping papers together. 
I don't like it. It's not my it's not my powerhouse, and I'm not going right. to do it. I love taking care of patients. Love, love, love it. I cannot mm-hmm. stand writing notes. I, I just don't like that stuff. And I got it. I mean, you have to just get over it, but it, it is true. I could sit down and talk to a patient all day long if I didn't have to write right. anything. Um, that's why I have two work wives. They are fabulous. Um, <laughs> so I, I had to make a decision because I knew where my power alley was and I knew it wasn't going up in administration. And I just, you know, I could be a teacher. I was like, I, I really wanted to go to medical school. So I made the commitment mm-hmm. to do it. Um, I do recommend not studying for the MCAT though, when you're working on a dude ranch, when everybody else is up drinking and you are right. sitting by the creek studying, you know, organic chemistry, it just did not go well. Um, So anyway, that is why I made the career choice. And I stayed working as a nurse all four years of um, medical school. So I would, so all during the summers, I would come back. And then when I was in Ohio, I actually worked in the MICU, the medical ICU. That is not for me. Um, But, you know, my, my surgical clerkship director, he didn't know that I was I was like, didn't you ever wonder why I knew absolutely every single detail of your patient the night before? Because I had worked there over the weekend. Right. And um, it was a great way to make money. And I, the end, I decided that once I became an MD, people are too crazy in this litigation world. I, I didn't want anyone yes. to see that I was an MD and an RN. So that's why mm-hmm. I, I stopped. But I loved every minute of nursing. I, I really did. Yeah. It was It's an awesome profession. And I right. love to... You know, I give lots of advice to people thinking about the mm-hmm. nursing profession because it's just it's just neat. So yeah, but you have to. What do you miss about it? Twelve-hour shifts, going home. <laughs> um, yeah, it's you know this job is super demanding, and I had a lot more days off then. Um, yes, that's that's really all all I miss because I in the SICU, especially when in my career, we we really worked as a team. So we shared a lot back and forth. So, you know, I would, if you were the resident on and I knew that there's a one, one of the attendings, her name was Pam Lipset, she would always round at 430. So mm-hmm. if you were sleeping and I knew that you were sleeping and then like the potassium was low, I would, you know, tap on, on your shoulder, Pam's coming. Do you want me to go ahead and give some potassium or whatever it was? So I you know, try to help each other out. Um, yeah. And I think that, I don't know. I just, it was a great team effort. Yeah. Except for when you get the occasional resident that was like, uh, talk to the hand. I'm like, no, you never say that to me because that's not going to, I'm helping you. And if you don't take my advice, I'm going to point it out when we round and then you're going to look like a fool. So you should always listen to the SICU nurse. They know a heck of a lot more than you do Yes, for sure. And they're with the patient all the time and you are not. So, um, it's, they're very smart people. They choose that career for a reason. And they fi- no, I totally and they agree. don't hide behind, oh, it's nursing policy that we don't do that. Most of them were like, give it to me. I'll take care of it. What tricks can right. I, you know, the, the red rubber catheter always was like the best device to put things together. And I was like, that's remarkable. And, and I did notice when I was an orthopedic resident that you would hit some of the younger nurses and they're like, what? Red rubber catheter? I don't know how this puts, to, you know, goes together. You'll have to figure it out. I'm like, no, 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 that's not the way it goes. <laughs> so, and if, you know, if oh I had to gosh. put like Buck's traction in the middle of the night when I was in 
a resident, I if they're right. going to wake me up for a nursing order, the entire unit is going to come watch the demonstration. Yeah. So, oh, that's awesome. How did how do you think your past as a nurse helped you as a physician? I mean, not only in the sense that you had this experience in healthcare and probably knew a lot more than the medical students in terms of just like just general things, but how else did it help you? Um, well, there were, I will tell you, to be honest, there are certain disadvantages too. So some people do, mm-hmm. you know, they'd say some funny things to you, but I learned to um, protect my podium. So I would find the right time to tell people that I was a nurse. Um, like right. if a patient was, you know, I would, I always like to move patients to make sure, you know, can I ask you, you know, for help? I kind of knew what they needed. Um, I mm-hmm. guess that gave me a little bit of an advantage. And I also, this is the problem. I knew what they, what, what, you know, like you can put an NG tube in. You learned that in nursing school. You can draw that blood because that CBC that I have to draw the type and screen for is the C, I'm treating your CBC. That's ridiculous. Like mm-hmm. you should, t- you know, don't, don't lose that power. That's insulting. Um, so, so advantages are you do know how to talk to people. I think I was very right. proud of being a nurse. Um, some people really like to hear that, but sometimes if you know if you're getting a little frustrated with something, they they do hold it against you um, too. But and I had you know like in my OBGYN rotation, I had actually worked for an OBGYN for almost ten years, so I know a heck of a lot of stuff in that field. Right. And that was not well received. Um, but there, the sometimes I think residency is very tough for, for that group. So I don't right. think it, I mean, when they're attendings, it's, it's a game changer, but so, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are pluses and minuses, but for the most part, people are very proud when you tell them, Oh, you know, or if you stop and you say, Oh, can I help you move that patient up the bed? They're, they're right. very, they're very kind about it. They love it. Right. That's awesome. I do. I think something that you mentioned is the physician nursing relationship in which some physicians are willing to help. And when a nurse asks something, they say, yes, I can do that. And others are let just talk to the hand like, no, no, no. Um, So do you think that what do you think about the physician nursing relationship in 2020? So. I know how I approach it. I approach it as we are a team. The more you mm-hmm. know, the better we do. So like in the OR, when I'm beginning my day, I actually try to give them stuff to read. I, I right. walk them through the case. I tell them a little story about the patient because I want to be working together at all times. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time like that, but it's certainly my intention um, to teach a little bit and to make them understand what the purpose of a task is. And I also, I really value their opinions because it's kind of, you know, for me, like I'm seeing that patient for two seconds there, you know, if I'm rounding really fast, right. I want to know, are there any problems? Is there anything that you picked up? It's intuition that they get, they get experience with the patient. They know that there's a social problem going on. They know that that patient just can't take a pill and it's not going to happen. Or mm-hmm. um, so I think the more communication you have and being a good listener, I think is huge. Um, and making them feel as important as we know they are. Right. And I, I do like 
I will say again, though, if they call me for something that they, you know, I, this is my line. If your child came to you and they said, I can't, and they, they haven't tried or they, it's not going to go over well. If you say, I, I tried and I couldn't, I'm willing to help all day long. But at three o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning, if you are going to call me to put on Buck's Traction with four pieces of Velcro and tying a knot to put a five pound weight on at three o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to be happy. And I'm, but I'm going to make it a teaching moment, but I'm going to make mm-hmm. everybody learn. So we never have this phone call again. Um, so that, is, oh, you know, or, you know, like, I, and I only ask for things that I would be willing to do myself. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's, it's really important to, we work together, we try to ed- educate each other. We learn, we can learn a lot both ways. So I think mm-hmm. being a good listener is important. Oh, fantastic. I do want to talk about you, as you mentioned, limb deformity and the fact that you are a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And I was hoping you can talk to us about what inspired you to pursue pediatric orthopedics? So I sort of left off at the Sinai part that I worked, I I did my uh, one month away rotation uh, in limb deformity. And at Mm -hmm. Sinai, you can uh, treat adults and kids, but mostly it was kids. Some of the coolest, most amazing kids that I have ever met. Um, You know, they're born with differences or they have a trauma that becomes a difference. And, you know, the job of an orthopedic surgeon is pretty remarkable. I mean, we can really like we can change some some lives. You know, I get videos all the time now of you know kids walking that didn't walk before, and I it just it's so fun. So um, I did this month there, and really, just the patient population was really cool, and the amount of time and dedication that these parents put into their their child or, you know, a spouse puts into, there was one woman who had severe external rotation of her tibias and she was getting both of them derotated at the same time with an external fixer. I'm like, wow, that is just awesome. And so then that like really got my interest going. And, you know, I was like, gosh, you know, I like the fact that I can work on adults and kids and it's cold trauma, Mm -hmm. not so much call in the middle of the night, which is really plus. Um, But then when I finished my lint, so anyway, went back to Maimonides, then did my first fellowship for the year at doing limb deforming. And then after the, I was getting ready to finish the year. It looked like I was not going to get a job where I had originally planned. And I had to make my, my B plan. Cause you know, I always have a B and a C plan at all times. And actually my mentor from Sinai, John Hertzberg was like, you know, DuPont's right up the street. You you should con- mm-hmm. it's a really fantastic place. You should consider going to look there. And so um of course I was getting ready for my interview. You know, the zipper broke on my suit. It was it was it was whoa, it was tragic. And so I put this <laughs> outfit on and I had this cute little red jacket and it was missing a button. I'm like, oh I'll just let it flop over. It's gonna be fine. No, Will McKenzie, first thing he picks up on is the button that was missing. I'm like, oh I'm like, oh my gosh. I said, well, the alternative was worse. My pants could have fallen off and then where will we be now? So I said, <laughs> take the button. <laughs> I'll remember this. And that really began, re- began a very 
amazing relationship. And I ended up getting a six month fellowship here. And because I, after doing a year of limb deformity, I'm like, what am I? Am I an adult person? Am I a peds person? And then I mm -hmm. kind of fell into this fellowship. I was like, well, these are the nicest people I have ever worked with. It was, and I've been in Brooklyn and people are a little different in New York. Um, and so it was really wonderful to be at a place where I did not want to move from Baltimore for all the tea in China, but I was like, if I had to move and I could possibly mm -hmm. get a job here to work with these people, I'm in, right. I'm totally in. And it ended up working out. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, a kind of a beautiful thing because then I could say I was a pediatric orthopedic surgeon that specializes in limb deformity. And also John Hertzenberg had introduced me to club feet. And it mm. was just it, like, it all, it all ended up working together pretty famously. So I got, mm. I got lucky finally. Whew, right. Not so hard work, but <laughs> sometimes it, it uh, works. That's awesome. What is your favorite condition to treat and why? I think that's an unfair question. Um, <laughs> I take care of a lot of kids with arthrogryposis. I take care of a lot mm -hmm. of kids with congenital malformations like um, fibular hemimelia, tibial hemimelia, that kind of CFD, right. that kind of stuff. And boy, I really like taking care of clubfoot kids. It's, mm. I, I like them all. I mean, I really like that, that niche thinks a lot of, there's a lot of overlap um, that happens yes. with them. But when you have just sort of an idiopathic clubfoot, cutest, I, uh, first of all, I only, only the cutest kids come to me. I swear it is unbelievable how cute they are. And they have Aww. personalities and it's 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 really neat. Um, but Clubfoot, you put on a couple of casts and you're like, wow, that was a miracle. How did that happen? And you see this foot that was, you know, completely going the wrong direction. And then all of a sudden right. you're like, wow, what Clubfoot? It's gone. Wow, that's cool. Um, and you become so connected with your patients and, you know, mm -hmm. they my birthday was yesterday and they, you know, they're sending me videos and saying thanks. And I'm Aww. like, how did you even know it was my birthday? Oh, my secretary posted it. Thanks. Um, but anyway, it was, I mean, I love Clubfoot because you really see the miracle of just, just a few technically, you know, well-placed casts. You can really, you can really change a life. And, mm. you know, and sometimes the Clubfoot parent may be young or in a tough situation and having to see me every week can be a game changer. So you get right. both parts of that, which is pretty mm -hmm. special. But I love taking care of arthropodic kids. I love taking care of the defor like the deformity kids. You know, making their legs I long. I so I like it all. You love what you do. I do. Oh, that's awesome. What is your favorite surgical procedure to perform, and why? All right. So is it okay if I have an N of one now? Um, yes. So. I think one of the things that as I grow as an orthopedic surgeon um, is pushing your limits, thinking, you know, and actually being able to accomplish more than maybe you thought you could in the beginning. And uh, I did last week, I did a, a type 5A tibial hemimelia. So no tibia at all. Um, wow. The fibula is, you know, very high and outside. And so you have to bring the fibula down and then you put it underneath the femur and then you try to straighten out the foot and that's a long process to get there. And then, so you have this fibula sitting underneath the tibia and now you get to make it into a real leg. And so you take the patella, it's called a patellar Weber, or sorry, a Paley Weber arthroplasty and you take the 
part of, part of the patella and you flip it down to become the tibial plafond. And uh, oh, there's wow. a whole bunch more that goes into it, but right. it was a very long case for me. might've taken Dr. Paley a lot less time, but it <laughs> worked. And right. the child woke up and of course he went home the next day after this like marathon surgery and looked down at his legs and he said, Dr. Nichols, my foot is straight. And it oh. looks like a leg versus the 90 degrees of flexion at the knee and the 90, you know, like it's a totally different ball of wax. And just right. for me to, it was a really neat, technically challenging procedure. And it looks like the pictures hmm. or pretty close, but right. it, I'm, I don't know. You, you have those moments that you're proud of, or if you take an arthropodic patient that is stuck in you know 80 or 90 degrees of flexion and they can't walk and then you mm -hmm. do a little realignment and all of a sudden they come walking into your clinic with no crutches standing straight and tall i'm like wow who did that and then you realize like you can accomplish a lot of things and they have to work really hard too but mm -hmm. i don't know there's there's a lot of give back in this profession it's pretty yeah. I don't know I feel very blessed to get to do what I do yes no that's very special um, I do want to talk about your leadership accomplishments um, in 2011 you were selected to be a part of the emerging leaders program of the American Orthopedic Association and just for review for our listeners the emerging leaders program represents a highly select group of orthopedic surgeons who are poised to impact the specialty now and in the future per their website. Um, so first of all, congratulations on this honor and being a part of the program. How did this program impact your career? Well, first of all, I still was looking like, who, me? Can, do I get to do that? that is <laughs> well, the, the coolest thing was to be chosen, number one, and right. to sit in a room that it was, it's kind of like when you're the smart kid in school and, you, and you're allowed to, like everybody's smart around you and it's cool to be smart, not like, oh right. brother. Um, so you're sitting in this room full of people that are just, it's okay to play the silly card game that they teach you to, you know, try to get you to come out of your shell and talk. Cause I don't really have that much trouble talking, but um, maybe I, you know, I could pretend like I'm shy or something. Um, but <laughs> um it was really neat to just be able to be among, you know, peers and see some pretty awesome people that you identified with as leaders and just to know that somebody chose you. So you, it really, like, I wanted to be a leader because I want to help people like you get into orthopedics. Mm -hmm. I want to help, I want to make it doable. I want right. to show people how fun it is. Now, it is not all roses on this side, but it really, like, mm -hmm. that was really cool to me. A, to see other people that were really interested in putting a nice flavor to the world of orthopedics. We, have, we do do a very cool job. And um, it really, the cool thing is that the emerging leaders, I think, uh, I, I actually was a leadership fellow for AOS. Oh, wow. And that to me was, that sort of was, the wow moment because I had been in a bunch of meetings and people were talking about being a leadership fellow. And I was like, what is that? I've never even heard of that. Now, of course they just dissolved the program, but talk about being in a room of cool people and right. to, there are so many different leadership styles and in our group of, and moving on a little bit from emerging leaders, cause this took us to a smaller group is that you can see 
how differently you can lead, how you can be, you know, quiet, you can be kind of very loud and rambunctious, or you can just be you and people will start noticing that you really care about the, the, the future of orthopedics and how we get everybody to be together. And you right. can open up conversations. You can lead by, you know, being a leader, leader in mentorship. You can be a leader in, you know, the technical field of shoulder arthroplasty. But to me, you know, it's it's about how do we include everybody mm-hmm. to make people know. Like I, I love telling my story to you because I'm like I want to show you that it's not going to always happen that you have to try three times. You know, I'm sure that right. It, it's sometimes going to happen that you actually get what you want the first time, but it's never without effort. And, you know, I think you, what you put in, you get out. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I like organizing people. I like learning with people. I like having people around. And so that sort of inspired me to, to mm-hmm. kind of keep chipping away. And I'm going to be the president of the Limb Lengthening and Reconstruction Society Congratulations. It's, I guess it's two years, well, two years now. And whoever would have thought that that was going to happen? I'm like, wow, that is so darn cool. And, you know, I just think that people should know that you can, you can be just sort of somebody. And if you show passion and if you Mm -hmm. keep talking and you are a good listener, I think that lots of things can come, you know, some days I wish I was just hanging out doing the same surgery every day, like 10 times and then going home and, mm-hmm. you know, having a templated note, but there's not, there are not many templated notes in my practice because everybody's a not little, deformity, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of differences, <laughs> but, um, you know, that was, I think the emerging leader thing was a, a wake up to say, wow, you do like to be a leader and you're allowed to, and right. it might work. And then the leadership fellows program was just awesome. Mm. Ugh, that's amazing. Out of curiosity, was there diversity in these programs? That did you witness that? Um, I'm da- I, I think in especially in that program there was there was diversity because I think people mm-hmm. were um, try like I think that was an, an effort to uh, right. keep it diverse, and so that to me was you know. There are some situations where you look around, you're like, whew, I am the only woman in this room. And there are mm-hmm. other times that, that that doesn't matter. And I think that um, in this case, in, you know, in an emerging leaders forum, it, it, there, was, there was diversity without having to talk about it. There right. are definitely more men, definitely less African-Americans in general Mm -hmm. in the room, but that is very typical. We have to change all of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think everyone's voice was was heard and that is really important. Hmm. What advice do you have for surgeons and surgeons in training who want to be future leaders of orthopedics? I think that you have to believe in the power of your dreams and that if you feel like you have something to say, if you feel like you're an awesome listener, and I mean, not not, my husband would disagree with me that I'm an awesome listener, but um, I think you, I really do think you have to look inside of yourself. And I had the opportunity Mm -hmm. a little bit because I tried to really like be crazy for, you know, after college and before I went to medical school. So I, you know, I kind of figured out who I was 
And I took a lot of risks to make myself be who I wanted to be. And it's an mm -hmm. ever-changing goal for me to, you know, try to be a more compassionate person, to be, you know, better organized, to like, there, you want to always grow. But to be a leader, I think you have to set your mind on it and say, that's really interesting to me. And I will, and right. I'm going to do it. There's, you have to believe that you can do it no matter what people say to you. You know, my dad keeps saying that I could, I'll never be able to run, run a marathon. Well, maybe not now because I just tore my ACL. I have I've had a total of four ACL tears now. Oh, I just man. recovered from my last one. But, you know, maybe oh, perhaps I won't run another marathon. But he told me, oh, mm -hmm. you don't have a runner's body. You'll never be able to do it. I'm like, why would you ever tell me never? Have them when I proved that that is not <laughs> going to happen. So now I'm going to have right. to run two more. Thanks a lot. Um, so <laughs> believe in your dreams. And I put this up there, um, you know, my, my motto in life, uh, passion yeah. gets you started, hope keeps you go going, and persistence gets it done. So you can do whatever you want in life. You just have to put your, your mind to it and be a part of the solution, not the problem. I love it. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Nichols. My last question for you is you are doing a lot of big things for the world of orthopedics. And I was hoping you can share your future goals and projects with us. So to me, I, I had to write an essay recently because I was applying for a traveling fellowship. I'm like, gosh, what a are my goals and aspirations what am i trying what am i trying to do and it was really interesting because i was like gosh everything comes to me comes back to mentorship and right. to like i really want to be somebody very big in resident education and mentorship and making people feel that you can ask questions like i love to take care of medical students on our rotations on i i want to you know i hope that we can continue helping people have conversations with each other so that, you know, we can keep learning from each other. And, you know, I think there are ways to do that. Um, so mm -hmm. to me, I, you know, I hope I can play a bigger role. You know, I, I was just lamenting, I'm talking to my mentee from Ruth Jackson tomorrow night. I'm like, gosh, I really, I, she's been on my list for a long time and I keep missing her. And she's like, oh my gosh, you've been on my list for a really long time. And I keep forgetting to call you. And I was like, Oh, okay. So, but that to me, you know, I like, I'm always trying to improve my, you know, my knowledge base, mm -hmm. my skills, my, you know, there are a million things you want to do. But I think the most important thing for me is to try to be a role model and a mentor. I think they're very different things that people mm -hmm. can feel free just to pick up the phone or get on an email and know that, that, it's not scary. And it's, you know, like, I like doing that. I like working right. together with people. I've made very strong mentors through both my fellowships and without those people, oh my gosh, I'd be lost. It's so right. nice to be able to call pretty much anyone to, for a second set of eyes before I, you know, endeavor, you know, like when I did that big case on Thursday, I asked, when I called Paley right away. I'm like, all right, any tips and trip tricks? I need to know them because you know, it's good to hear it from the source. So making, right. I hope to be one of those people that people feel very comfortable to talk to. Oh. Well, Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I've just had such a blast talking with you and I absolutely love your story and I sincerely wish you the best with everything that you're doing. Thanks so much. It's fantastic to talk to you.
Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the RJOS podcast with Dr. Reed Nichols. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.rjospodcast.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Venny-Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. I would also like to thank the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society for allowing me to partner with them and share these stories. Thank you so much for listening, and please stay safe.